Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, it's Basha here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. This week, a story about the rules. So let me set the scene. I'm talking second jobs, party gate, changes to the ministerial code. The UK government has hurtled from one political controversy to the next. And a key chapter in the story of how we got here opens in 2019, when Boris Johnson, who had just become prime minister, unlawfully, it turned out, asked the Queen to suspend Parliament. It was a really extraordinary moment that crystallised something for us here in the Tortoise Newsroom. That's the place where we make this podcast. Back in 2019, it crystallised for us that the unwritten rules and conventions that govern our democracy no longer work. And so we set out to figure out how on earth we should fix them. In this week's Slow Newscast, one pandemic later and with our democracy facing fresh challenges, we're picking up where we left off. I'm going to hand over to my colleagues Matt Dancona and Lara Spirit to tell you a story about Britain, about where it is today and where, for better or worse, it might be going. Sue Gray catalogues a series of late drunken nights while Covid laws banned the country from anything of the sort. A three-day hunt for a Tory MP seen watching pornography in the Commons chamber. And you're content to back a lawbreaker in office? I, I certainly am, and I, th- I think the Prime Minister's have many achievements so far, I think. Do you ever get the feeling that the pandemic never happened, or more precisely, that we learned nothing from it? Three years ago, Tortoise launched an investigation that we called The Rules. Our starting position, informed by, but not limited to, the mayhem around Brexit and Parliament, was that democracy just wasn't working. We listened to experts and members at Thinkins, our live unscripted events, all over the country. And we concluded that the old system of incremental change, conventions and good chaps doing the right thing, well, all that was well and truly broken. As a start for 10, we called for a codified constitution, a single document in which the rules of democratic, governmental and judicial process would be defined once and for all. And we looked further afield for more granular problems and solutions. Why was trust in the system so desperately low? Would greater devolution of power and public finance make a difference? What about the much-vaunted citizen assemblies that have been used in some countries to help develop policy with community stakeholders? And how far were the supercharged networks of the digital era replacing institutions as the key vectors of power? And then, well, then a virus took hold of these islands and everything ground to a halt. I'm Matt Dancona. And I'm Lara Spirit. In this slow newscast, we'll be picking up where Tortoise left off in 2020, telling a story as we always do. 
But in this case, a story about a nation, its people, and the state of its democracy. We're already back on the road, hearing from people across the country. The community around me has no voice whatsoever through the BBC or through you know, local, local political or central government. Talking about democracy, but what's democracy? Coming out and casting a vote. If you then are operating the whole rest of your life within a society that is set up to make some people healthy and wealthy and well and other people unhealthy and poor, no wonder they're not interested in, you know, coming out to stick a vote in a ballot box. But to get an even deeper sense of the British electorate's mood, views and anxieties, we commissioned a large-scale opinion poll. It had 10,000 respondents. That's 10 times the normal number in polls you see reported in the press. And we also commissioned two focus groups, all conducted by Delta Poll in April. To make sense of the results and to kickstart our audit, Lara and I spoke to the poll's mastermind, Peter Kellner, a hugely respected pollster and political commentator. So, Peter Kellner, um, you've been conducting and masterminding polls for a great many years, and I'm fascinated to know what you were hoping to find out in this poll. What, what kind of things were you looking for? That's what we were looking for, was a sense as to whether voters out there think our democratic system is working or not working. And when I say democratic system, I don't mean this government, this prime minister... I don't mean Ukraine or, or inflation. Look, it's something, something much more fundamental about whether the, the architecture of British democracy is, is holding up or, or pe- do people think it's, it's crumbling. Um, and I have to say, I was surprised and disappointed at how critical so many voters are of the basis of our democratic institutions. When you talk about the democratic system, do you, did you find that respondents to the poll understood that to mean institutions or something much more broad? One of the questions we asked, which I think is quite telling about the way people view our whole system, was we gave them a list of uh, 10 or a dozen possible aspects of, of what it's like to be in a free society. And we asked them which of these group, what three or four, they most associated with freedom. And the thing that came top was the National Health Service. It wasn't, as it were, democracy in any conventional sense at all, but as well what they want to get out of the, of the system. So looking at the whole survey, what were the things that leapt out at you? Three findings which together tell, I think, a rather worrying story. When we asked people do they think Britain is a democratic society? Only half the sample think Britain is either very or fairly democratic. The second thing is that they have a very, very low opinion of MPs. And here we do have some historic data. And if you go back, say, to the post-war era, late 40s, 1950s, not that MPs were wildly popular, but a substantial number, a majority of voters, broadly thought that Parliament worked well, that MPs broadly were public spirited, not simply out for themselves. And then the third thing we found, which I found the most terrifying of all, is when we asked people to choose between a society led by a strong leader who could take quick decisions 
and not have to worry about parliament and the process of parliamentary scrutiny and legislation, or a system in which we kept parliamentary scrutiny, the parliamentary process, even if that slowed things down, 30%. One person in three would prefer to have a strong leader that could ride roughshod over our conventional systems for keeping an executive in check. Let's take all three of those in turn because they're so interesting. So, Peter, let's start with the question of um, faith in the democratic system. Um, why is that so? That figure so comparatively low? And what do you think people understand by the words a democratic system? It's clear that a great many people view freedom, democracy, whether it's functioning or not, in broadly functional and instrumental terms. Are their lives being made better, more secure, more prosperous as a consequence of the political processes? And my sense is a lot of the criticism of our democratic system of MPs is to do with the sense that the system isn't delivering. Now, the thing that's harder to tell is whether this is a reaction to what 14, 15 years, when for most people there has not been a rise in living standards, when public services have been under strain, when there hasn't been what we had, with a few exceptions, of pretty steady growth from the 50s to around 2007, a general secular rise in prosperity, more money being spent on public services, higher take and pay, better jobs and so on. That seems to have come to an end for the time being. Can I ask you as well this question of personal political agency? Because conservatives in that question were much more likely to think that the country was democratic than Labour voters were. And similarly, older voters were much more likely to think the country was democratic than younger voters were. So is it saying something more than just material conditions, for example, and might speak to political power as well in that question? There's always going to be an element of this, that if we get a Labour government, Labour-led government after the next election, and we're to repeat these questions in, say, four years' time, I suspect that Conservative faith in democracy will be down a bit Mm. and Labour voters' faith in democracy will be up a bit. There is something going on which is obviously partly influenced by whether you're a fan of the present government or a critic of the present government, but I don't think it explains all that much. I think the last few months have made a difference. I guess I'm the only one in this room who remembers actively the 1970s and when inflation at one point reached, I think, 26%. And for something like 15 years, it was only briefly below 10%. The return of inflation has come as a much bigger shock, I think, to your generation than it has to mine. I also think that Partygate has had an effect. And people are bothered that they were obeying the rules and they couldn't say farewell to loved ones who are dying. And that has cut through. But I think the bigger effect has been the sense that we have a prime minister who doesn't tell the truth. I mean, the figures for the perception of Boris Johnson telling lies, I mean, these figures are extraordinary. You get sort of 70 80%, which includes, therefore, a very substantial number of Conservative voters who think their Prime Minister doesn't tell the truth. Is that a statement of recognition, though, Peter, or a statement of disapproval? Because people, I would imagine, would, would have said that Boris Johnson was the liar before the 2019 election, in which he won a 
AC majority. So the question I'd ask is, okay, they, they know he's alive, but are they bothered? Well, some people aren't bothered, but I think a lot of people are. And I think the difference is that those of us who followed Boris Johnson's career have perhaps not been greatly surprised by his behaviour and, and his what he said in Parliament. But until Partygate, people in the dog and duck were not in general, I suspect, talking about Johnson's history of dishonesty. And now they are. And it's cut through. I think, I think what's happened over Partygate, a large part of it, is that it's, it's the character judgment about Johnson. So let's look at the second question. You, you highlighted the second finding, uh, Peter, which is the way in which MPs are perceived. Mm. And it seems to me there's a very interesting um, history in this, uh, one imagines, um, that perhaps stretches back to the Nolan report and to standards in public life in 1995 and what's happened since. And I just wonder why, why it is that we have, as a society, formed this rather poor view of MPs as a group. Classic example of beware the unintended consequences. And it seems to me two things have happened. The first is the behaviour of MPs, certainly in terms of, of, of money, let's put sex to one side, has improved a lot over the last 30 years. But secondly, the reputation of MPs has got a lot worse, most notably during the expenses scandal um, around 2009, I think it was. Now, I once got into trouble when on a live Radio 4 interview, I mentioned that Winston Churchill's own financial arrangements in the 20s and 30s, and indeed when he was Prime Minister, would not stand up to scrutiny by today's standards. Now, I should have made clearer than I did that I wasn't saying Churchill was corrupt. What I was saying is the standard, what I was meaning to say was the standards of those times were different. There were stories of him when he was Prime Minister pressurizing the Inland Revenue to be lenient about his tax affairs. I'm not going to pretend I know all the details, but the point I'm making is that what you've got is the required standards are much higher now than they were 50 or 100 years ago. And this has done two things. It's dragged MPs' behavior up because it can't afford to be seen, to be fall, uh, too far below the standards. But the transparency that we now have means that financial peccadilloes that would have been ignored or not known about half a century or a century ago are known about. We probably have one of the most clean, one of the cleanest political systems in terms of MPs' financial behaviour uh, of, of any country in, in the world. Going back to polling, um, what was it about MPs' behaviour that the respondents didn't like? A general feeling they're out for themselves, not for the public interest. I don't recall either in this or other surveys recently people saying MPs are you know, financially corrupt. They simply feel that MPs, once they get to Westminster, live in their own culture, their own world, have their own um, ambitions, and this takes them uh, uh, away from the public. And then one of the questions we asked, which I, I found quite disturbing, is what I call the Edmund Burke question. Edmund Burke, you remember, 18th century uh, conservative politician who said that um, MPs should not be told what to do by their constituents. They should, they're elected to use their judgments, to come to Westminster, debate and use their judgments, so what to do. 
And so he asked the representative versus delegates question. Do you think your MP should use their judgment when voting or should they do what their constituents want even if they, the MP, thinks that is a bad outcome for the country? And by a clear majority, voters want MPs to be delegates. One of the reasons, in principle, why I much prefer the representative system is that you can then hold MPs responsible for the outcome of what happens. Take us on to the third thing you drew out of the polling, Peter, which was the alarming extent to which uh, the respondents liked the idea of strongman leadership as opposed to parliamentary democracy. I mean, this, this really draws one up. Let me, let me read out what 30% support. Britain needs, these days needs a strong leader who can take and implement big decisions quickly without having to consult Parliament. Among Conservatives, it's 43% of that view. Among Labour and Liberal Democrats, in both cases, 26%. If you're a lever in the Brexit debate, you're more likely to want it than Remainers. But the figures are all within a span. So whichever demographic or political group you look at, there will be somewhere between sort of 25 and 40%, somewhere in that realm. In Britain, we've been incredibly lucky over the last century in avoiding the spasms of extremism, not just, you know, obviously, the 1920s and 30s, but you look at you know, Marine Le Pen getting more than 40% in the recent French elections, or for a while the alternative für Deutschland in Germany being the main opposition force before the uh, last election. So the way I look at it is that we shouldn't assume that British people are fundamentally different from people in other countries. If the circumstances arise when the polity of a country is in really serious trouble, much more trouble than Britain's has been in recent years, and if you then get a plausible leader emerging who can say, we'll sort this out, but we need a period when we need to take tough measures for the interest of the country. We can't shelly-shally around. We can't allow our crisis to be continued because of a talking shop. I think what I'd say is I wouldn't guarantee that Britain would be immune to that. Did you find in the polling, Peter, any direction of travel that voters would like to see on institutional reform? We didn't ask that question directly. We did ask what people regarded as the best and worst features of British democracy. The one that came out best was everyone having an equal say in the future of the right to vote, and the one that came out worst was rich and powerful people having more powerful influence than ordinary voters. So you get a sense there that the idea of equality and the operation of inequality is what concerns people. When we asked about trust, MPs do very badly, but so do tabloid newspapers, as we used to call them. So do business leaders. So I think one of the things that comes out to me is that Westminster is at the heart of a web of whether you call it the system or the elite or whatever you want to call it, which includes businesses, civil servants, the media. And there is a very, very widespread sense that this whole sort of apparatus of of the top of modern Britain is simply letting people down. We also asked people how they feel about democracy, didn't we? What were the kind of top words that people used when they described how they felt about it? 
what we did, we gave people a list of eight adjectives, four positive, four negative. So the positive ones were hopeful, confident, happy, proud. And we were asking what, what, which of these words, and they could choose as many or as few as they like, describe their feelings about how democracy works in Britain. And the top three were all negative. The biggest was uneasy, four in ten. Disgusted, a quarter. Angrier, just a bit under a quarter. And then the three that came last were positive. Proud, just 8%. Happy, 8%. Confident, 10%. So what would you, what would you do? Oh, my goodness. Lara, forgive me. Uh, and act like a politician and, and, and answer a slightly different question, but I'm, I'm explicit about answering a slightly different question. Supposing in 10 or 20 years' time, this poll was repeated and we got much better scores for our democratic system. What would have changed? And I think two things would have changed. Firstly, we'd have resumed steady growth, rising living standards, improvement in public services, so that people felt they really did have a stake in society and society was more or less working for them. And secondly, I think there would have been a change in the culture of politicians at Westminster. When I was a young journalist in the 1970s, the people at the top of British politics had on the whole been people who had been through the Second World War. Many of them had fought on it. People like Willie Whitehall had got the military cross. Dennis Healy from Labour had, had, had been a beachmaster at Anzio, the invasion of Italy. Roy Jenkins had been a codebreaker at Bletchley. And they had, in my sense, a different view of politics. Firstly, they were profoundly grateful that democracy had survived the Second World War. They treated it with a seriousness and, and a reverence that I don't think today's young, aspiring politicians have. And secondly, they had more respect for each other. You, you still got, you know, pretty rumbustious party knockabout. You will never get rid of that. But they knew the limits of that. And I thought political debate was simply more serious. Now, I'm not suggesting we have another world war in order to improve the culture of British politics. It'd be a pretty high price to pay. If you're reflecting on your polling and you think you could change one thing about how people feel about democracy to improve it, what do you think that would be? What would improve people's view would be if they felt that politicians were honest and acting in the public interest. Because those are the two properties that people are most sceptical and critical about. The answer, in the end, the solution is with MPs themselves. Almost anybody who's spent their life closely observing and talking to politicians, spending time in, in Parliament, you find that when you get away from the microphone and the chamber, in my experience, from all parties, they are honest. They are public spirited. If voters could see them as we see them in small gatherings, over lunch, you know, at conferences abroad and so on, I think they have a much higher opinion. And so the oddity is that the way politicians appear to the public is when you get snatches in Parliament's debates or Prime Minister's questions or when they're being interviewed on the radio and they're up against somebody else. They turn into, far too often, into unpleasant contestants in a Manichaean struggle. And 
in as far as climbing politicians, backbenchers want to make progress, they come to the notice of, of, of the whips or the people who have their future in their hands by being as rude as possible about the other side. I know where I want to get to. And I know that actually politicians on the whole are people who, if the public could see them as they really are, would be a lot more impressed. I can't work out how we arrange things so that politicians behave like that in Westminster or in, or in a studio, which is where people tend to see them. So we know the light, we just don't know how to shape the tunnel. Exactly. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. Peter Kellner there with a plea for a less polarised and divisive politics. So, Lara, here we are a few days later. Let's unpick some of what we heard from him. So Peter Kellner thought two things would have to change to improve people's faith in democracy people's standard of living and their perception of MPs' behaviour. Let's take the first of these and talk about the economy. So one of the most interesting things for me was just the huge dominance that this theory of economic powerlessness and a change in economic fortunes has had in influencing people's perceptions of democracy. And it made me think a bit about some of the things that you've written in the past, Matt, because I have the suspicion that you might disagree with some of the more economically deterministic areas of his thought. Is that Right. Well, yes. I mean, I think Peter is absolutely right to say that austerity and economic anxiety underpin a lot of the problems of trust that we've seen not only in the UK, but around the world. Where I differ from him, I think, is that I do agree with the proposition now that 
culture is upstream from politics and that politics isn't just um, a subset of economics. And I don't think the solutions to failures of trust are purely economic. I think that Brexit was a very good case study in that because there were plenty of polls at the time in 2016 that showed that people were willing to sacrifice a measure of their standard of living for the taking back of control or or return of sovereignty or whatever phrase you prefer that they saw embedded in the Brexit ideal. And that in turn, I think, shows you how how important questions of culture and of identity have become. And I think any discussion of the rules that govern a society have to take account of that significant shift in the way that society is now ordered, a lot of which is accounted for by technology, of course. Yeah, and I'm quite keen to talk about technology because we touched on it in the discussion with Peter, though not as a kind of form of a solution, but as perhaps an indication for how much the world has changed. I think we've had these discussions before about the great potential that technology would have to, from my perspective, increase the number of young people who might be able to turn out to vote. I think, unfortunately, when we talk about it, it seems to stray quite quickly into the damage that technology is doing to democracy. I think that's right. I think any consideration of the future of democracy and the rules has to take account of the way in which digital networks are now arguably more important than old-fashioned institutions. And I think that's a neutral fact. It, it ought not to be seen entirely as a pathology, as you say. For example, the Trump phenomenon was far more a digital phenomenon than it was an institutional phenomenon. And I think that there's a problem that's often reached a kind of dead end where we try and solve the problems of 2022 using the toolkit of the 1980s, frankly, because there's been a debate about constitutional reform going on since then, which usually lights upon electoral reform voting rights, the House of Lords reform, and so on. And all of these things are worthy subjects, but they are not the end of the story. And I think that people's understanding of how society works is more and more dominated by what comes through their smartphone than what they understand their MP is up to. And knitting the two together is a job of work. We have to, in a sense, rely on the institutions in order to fix the problems or the consequences of these digital networks, right? A key example, I think, being that when we listened to the focus groups, one of the things that was really striking was people talking about how uneasy they felt, the kind of confusion that people have with our democratic processes and the consequences of them. And there were a number of comments after the Queen's speech recently about how confused, arguably, the government's platform of legislation was. And one of the most confused aspects concerned the way in which our democracy understands technology because it was, on the one hand, the online harms that legislation, on the other hand, the freedom of speech legislation, two pieces um, of policy which don't wed well together at all, right? And that, I think, is part of the conversation we have around how do we make the kind of consequences of our democracy seem more coherent to people? Yes, I mean, government always lags behind technology. That's a historical truth. But it's lagging behind this technological revolution more seriously than any in history, I think. And Whilst it's a kind of glib answer to a lot of sort of discussions about the meaning of the digital revolution to say we need digital literacy and so and this should be brought brought about in schools tomorrow. I think what we really do need is is parliamentarians who understand this. Um, So it's been quite shocking to me and I've I've appeared before a couple of select committees uh, dealing with digital democracy and the, the, the level of 
uh, knowledge, with a few conspicuous exceptions, like Damien Collins, mm. uh, the Conservative MP, who's been very involved in this, is really shocking. People, you know, who who, who say MPs who say what's an app. Um, so, and I think that's an unforgivable kind of gap. Uh, and, and MPs have a duty to understand at least the basics of digital culture as part of their political responsibilities, their basic political responsibilities, uh, because they're not going to be able to serve their constituents and the broader polity unless they understand how this stuff works. Mm. Um, and at the moment, they don't. Just on this point of the actual MPs themselves, one of the things that I'm remembering quite clearly from our discussion with Peter was just how much the character of MPs and the reputational damage of the last few years has had on people's perception of them and their trust in them, just how corrosive that's been for the health of democracy. And I wonder if when we're thinking about solutions, we might think about, I mean, institutional, non-institutional improvements to the way that people, people, you know, trust and engage with their representatives. I think that was one of the strongest points Peter made, really, which is it's very easy to yield to despair in, when presented with the sheer scale of this problem. And actually, there are some things that can be done immediately to improve and enhance the standing of MPs, the the. the consequences of these changes wouldn't be immediate, but the changes could be made immediately. The Committee on Standards of Public Life recommended a series of reforms in November 2021, such as that the ministerial code be put on a statutory footing, that the independent advisor to the Prime Minister on ministerial standards be given the power to initiate investigations themselves. And Lord Guite, who is the holder of that office at the moment, requested this right to in in the aftermath of all the fuss about Boris Johnson's wallpaper. Now, the government has turned down both those requests uh, and, in fact, has turned the clock back by, whilst we were reporting this newscast, Boris Johnson has changed the rules on when an MP has to, or a minister has to resign, replacing the, the duty to resign if you've, bro- you've found to have breached the code to a sliding scale from a mild reprimand, a slap on the wrist to full resignation. So actually, the the direction of travel at the moment is is in the wrong way. However, a reforming government could could make these reforms and they would be a good start because they would take the, the, the principles of transparency and accountability and so on that were first outlined by Lord Nolan in 1995 and they would really start to give them some proper teeth and they would lead to consequences that people could see. At the moment, those consequences are all too absent. This is incredibly dangerous, but there are things that can be done to to address it. The changes to the ministerial code, there's a sliding scale and some commentators have said that actually it is quite a helpful sliding scale because it isn't just a concern, Johnson. It's There's been a level of ambiguity around this code for some time about what different levels of severity will mean in terms of punishment and it does still leave it as a as a kind of clear finding that you should resign if you're a prime minister and you've you've lied to parliament right but the question has always been further than that which is would Boris Johnson do it and i think short of being on a statutory footing the question is perhaps no and that's where this codification question becomes interesting because it it concerns personal characters and the implication of different personal characters on our democratic norms and standards i'm a fairly hard line on this in that i support not only the the code being put on a statutory footing but um, more controversially the right to appeal decisions under judicial review 
Now, Parliament would go crazy about that because it would definitely dilute parliamentary sovereignty. But I actually think that's no bad thing. And the, 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 the idea that in very, very few but certain extreme circumstances, um, a failure to follow through on the, uh, on the code could be taken to a judge is, is not a bad one. Where does this leave us? Well, the case for a codified constitution is still strong, but we need to acknowledge that the house is on fire and that the fire needs to be extinguished first. So I think Peter Kellner's right that nothing will improve until voters have a better opinion of MPs and initial steps have been taken to make the digital space fit for civic discourse. Until voters and politicians alike gain some sort of agency over the algorithms that dominate their lives, politics will remain polarised, adversarial and performative. And democracy will continue its decline and its vulnerability to strongman autocracy. So we don't have a new set of rules just yet. Indeed, how could we? But we do have the beginnings of a roadmap. The question is where it'll take us. What we can be sure of is that the terrain is changing all the time, that the old ways are no longer fit for purpose, and that the solutions to the colossal problems besetting democracy in the 2020s are likely, strike that certain, to take unexpected forms. This Slow Newscast was presented by me, Matt Dancona. And me, Lara Spirit. The producer was Xavier Greenwood and the editor was Jasper Corbett. Sound design was by Mao Lazzetto. Three years on, it's great to be back on the trail of the rules and immersed in the argument. We hope you will come to our thinkings on the subject and send in your ideas to editor at tortoisemedia.com. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. But before you go, I want to tell you about a new six-part series that we're releasing at Tortoise. It's called London Grad, and it's investigating how the Lebedev family partied their way to power in the UK. To get early ad-free access to the first three episodes, which are out now, or if you just want to get more involved in our journalism, you can join us as a member of our newsroom. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thank you and I'll see you next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.